0: We're gonna look at the Book of Lamentations tonight. The book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a short book, much shorter than the previous two we looked at. From the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. I think we can, I really think we can get the message of Lamentations pretty simply, pretty quickly tonight, and, and uh, look forward to digging into this book with you. We're gonna read from chapter three. Verses 22 and 23, and I was just trying to, going to ask you to tell me what my song was after the sermon, but as soon as I looked at our, my text, I remembered, so um, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, most familiar words of the book of Lamentations, says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Ask him to bless us as we study it. Indeed, Lord, how firm a foundation is laid for our faith in your excellent word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study it tonight. And Lord, how strange we are when all the world hovers around their television sets right now to see a ball fly through the air, that we should be here in your house. Thank you for meeting us here. Bless us in our time together. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You are strange, you know that. You won't regret it. You might in two hours, but you won't, you won't in eternity. Question for you what is, the, what is the believer's recourse when life falls apart? What is the believer's recourse when life falls apart? What is it we are to grab onto? And as the hymn says, all around our soul gives way. Well, The book of Lamentations provides us with the answer. The writer of Lamentations' world has fallen apart. He writes, shortly after a time when the Babylonians have come and have hauled many of God's people away into exile, some of them have been left behind, but the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins, the temple has been destroyed. It's a devastating time. And it's really hard for us to appreciate, appreciate how utterly devastating the fall of Jerusalem was for the people of Judah. In the first place, the historical event itself was horrific. We, we read in 1 Kings 25 that the siege on the city of Jerusalem lasted for two years. And then when the Babylonians finally breached Jerusalem's walls, they raped her woman and killed many of her people. The event itself was terrible. It was horrific. It was accompanied by great suffering. But more than that, the fall of Jerusalem raised the even larger question of Israel's role as the people of God. Because you see, at the heart of Israel's self-understanding was the fact that their God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who created the universe, had chosen to dwell personally in their midst. He did that first in the tabernacle, but then finally in Jerusalem, which was the place He chose as a dwelling for His name, according to Deuteronomy 12, verse 11. So, the city of Jerusalem was unique. And that the city was intimately bound up with the people's relationship with God. And so now that the city has been destroyed, what does that mean for Israel's relationship with God? That's the question uh, that was on the people's minds at this time. And that's what made the fall of Jerusalem even more agonizing than it already was because it not only had physical implications, which were terrible enough, it also had spiritual implications. Now, the book of Lamentations is simply one person's way of expressing his sorrow and anguish over all that has taken place in Jerusalem after Babylon conquered it. The title Lamentations is derived from the very first word of this book in the Hebrew Bible. Don't look in your English translation, you won't see it. But the very first word in the Hebrew Bible is the word eka, which is simply an exclamation of woe. It's an exclamation of woe. And in light of this this opening cry of woe, later rabbis and scribes referred to this book simply as a lament or laments. A lament is really a, a cry of woe or a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And this title, given to it by these scribes of old, has stuck to this day. These are the laments, or the lamentations. Now, this book has, has traditionally been ascribed to the prophet Jeremiah. That's why it appears in our Bibles where it does, immediately after the book of Jeremiah. The fact is, nowhere, uh, nowhere in the book is the writer identified. And the truth is, we, we don't know who wrote lamentations. We need to be careful not to be dogmatic about it, but Jeremiah is as good of a guess as any for several reasons. First, he ministered during the time of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon, so this fits the time in which he ministered. More than that, Jeremiah was not of those immediately exiled to Babylon. He was among those who were allowed to stay behind, and it seems the writer of Lamentations was also among those who were allowed to stay behind in decimated Jerusalem. More than that, there's a lot of emotion in the book of Lamentations, just as there is a lot of emotion in the book of Jeremiah. So the writing there is there's some similarities in in sort of the, the emotion that's wrapped up in it. So whether or not he actually wrote the book, we don't know, but it's certainly possible, and it's a very reasonable guess. Now, because we aren't sure... Scholars um, often take the safe way out, and they generally refer to the writer of Lamentations as the poet. And for the sake of our study tonight, I'm going to use the same designation uh, from here forward. So when I speak of the poet, we're simply talking about the writer of Lamentations. Now, as for the structure of Lamentations, it's pretty simple. The book of Lamentations is made up of five laments, which are set forth in each of the five chapters. The first lament is in chapter 1. Here we see lament over what happened in Zion. Zion is simply Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 1. See it right there. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Verse 19 here, and here it's as if Zion herself is speaking. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. So chapter 1 is simply lament over what has taken place in Zion. The second lament then is chapter 2. And here the poet spells out the ultimate cause for Israel's destruction. It's the Lord's anger. Just look at chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. And fierce anger, he has cut off every horn in Israel. Right? The Lord has done this, the poet says. The third lament is in chapter 4. And here the poet makes the despair of Jerusalem really his own. And we also see him call down curses on those enemies who are responsible for Judah's suffering. We also see that text we read at the outset, which is really the only bright ray of hope in the whole book. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The fourth lament is in chapter 4. Here the poet turns his attention to the horrible conditions in Jerusalem. Remember, he's he's among those who've been left behind, if you will, and and he sees Jerusalem destroyed, and and he he laments that here. Verses 4 and 5. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie in ash heaps. Those raised up in royal houses who've been clothed in purple, they're now now lying in ash heaps. He's lamenting the current conditions of Jerusalem. And it's it's truly the the, the reminiscent of those conditions in war-torn countries. It's reminiscent of conditions in Poland. At the end of World War II, or maybe many of the countries in Europe at the end of World War II, the land is just devastated. Food and shelter are scarce. People are, people are trying hard to have their needs met, right? It's a war-torn country. It's exactly what it is. The final lament is in chapter 5. And here now, it's the people of Jerusalem who are speaking and who are crying out to the Lord to look upon their present affliction and mercy. Chapter 5, verse 1, remember, O Lord what has happened to us, look and see our disgrace. So, it's five laments, right? Five really poems of, woe. things are bad in Jerusalem. His world has fallen apart, and that leads me to something else I want to say about the structure of the book. Each of these five laments uh, is what we call an acrostic poem. And Hebrew acrostic poems are poems in which each verse starts with a subsequent letter of the alphabet. So, if we're doing this in English, it was obviously written in Hebrew, but if you're doing this in English, the first verse would start with A, the last verse would start with Z, the second verse would be B, the third verse C, you get what I'm saying, right? it just go through the alphabet. Well, it's doing it in the Hebrew, with the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The first is Aleph, the last is Aleph, Tav, and you'll notice that in every chapter there are 22 verses, except the third. In the third, there are 66 verses. 66 is 22 times 3, so the sequence just replays itself there. right? But each verse of these poems begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's why sometimes the subjects will, will jump around a little bit because the poet's primary concern is, uh, is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, not necessarily a continued thought. The same thing actually happens in the Psalms too, Psalm 34, 37, uh, 111, for instance, our Hebrew acrostics. Actually, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, that's the wife of noble character, that's also a Hebrew acrostic, Okay. Um, now we don't notice it, right? Because it doesn't—it tra- translates okay into our English, but not as—not not with the English alphabet, right? But, but those are all sort of across It's something Hebrew poets did, um, but it's 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 there. Now here's the thing, and here's why I point that out, because this pattern actually falls apart in chapter 5. In chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, the poet over and over and over again begins each verse with the first letter, or begins verse 1 with the the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, begins verse 22 with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet going straight through the alphabet. In chapter 5, it does not happen. There are 22 verses, but it's not arranged alphabetically. It's not arranged in an acrostic pattern, and that's significant. The poet is saying something to us in that detail. He's telling us that just as as the order in his poems have fallen apart, so has the order in his world fallen apart. It's symbolic, really, of what's going on in his soul and in his life. Now, what I want us to see tonight is simply the lifeline that the poet finds in his sea of sorrow. It is, I want you to see what he grabs onto even as everything around Him gives way, even as His world falls apart. It's almost smack dab in the middle of the book. Not quite, but but very close. We read it once already. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to start reading at chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace, I have forgotten what prosperity is, so I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. What happens here? Well, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his anguish, the poet finds recourse, comfort, hope, in the Lord's great love. The Hebrew word for love there is hesed. That's the almost impossible to translate Hebrew word that is used numerous, <laughs> numerous times in the Old Testament to describe that special, unbreakable, covenant love of God for his own. That's, the, that's, the, that's what the psalmist falls back on in this difficult time. That is his lifeline in his sea of sorrow, the Lord's great love, the Lord's hesed. He is merciful. He is faithful. And the poet knows, he understands that because of this, he has a reason to go on. He has he a has reason to hope. Now, how will the Lord's great love manifest itself? How will the Lord's mercy be made new every morning? How will His faithfulness prove great? That the poet does not know. That he's unsure of. But that the Lord will prove faithful, that He doesn't doubt. Ed mentioned Jennifer Burkholder. Some of you have spent time with her maybe these last months or in the past. She's obviously going through a trial world has fallen apart. You know what she'll tell you if you sit with her for any length of time? God is faithful. God is faithful. I was with her a couple weeks ago before her surgery. God is faithful. That's the believer's recourse when life falls apart. That's the reason we have hope even in our afflictions because God is faithful. His love never ceases. That's who he is. That's his character and his being. He is faithful. That's why we can trust him in difficult times because he cannot go against himself. God cannot be something he's not. He's faithful. And as one who is faithful, his love for his own is without end. Perhaps you need to fall back on that tonight. Perhaps you're going through some trial or some difficulty. Perhaps your world is falling apart. Here's your recourse, here's your hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm going to close then with the Christ focus. How do we see Jesus in lamentations? Well, this love and this mercy and this faithfulness of God spoken about in chapter 3 certainly finds its ultimate expression and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understood this well when he wrote what I think is one of the most hope-giving passages in all the Bible. He says, what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Paul there is saying, think about it, believer. Think about it. God didn't spare his own son for you. God didn't spare his own son for you. Certainly then, he's not going to give up on you now. right? Why would he do that only to give up on you later? It doesn't make sense. He's not going to. He gave his own son for you. How will he not graciously give you all things? No, his, his love endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. Look to the cross and you're going to see for yourself just how great and how merciful and how loving He is. Does it mean we won't have trials in life? Does it mean God won't discipline us as sons and daughters, even as He disciplined Israel long ago? No. But it does mean that whether we realize it or not, we are the daily objects of new morning mercies, And when it's all said and done, Christ's people will say with the poet, great is thy faithfulness. Indeed, no matter what's going on in my life or your life, by faith we say, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Let's pray. Lord God, because of your great love, made known to us in Jesus Christ and at the cross of Calvary, we are not consumed. We are not overwhelmed. We are not driven to despair by our troubles. Your love endures forever. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, why don't you stand? I'll give you the parting blessing. We'll sing our closing song, which is going to be great as thy faithfulness, and one of you can maybe give me the number on that in the book. What is it? 43. 43. Okay. Well, we'll do the parting blessing first. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Number 43. Number 43. And we will sing verses 1 and 3 together, 1 and 3 of 43.